Hello, and welcome back to our next episode of Private Markets Made Human, the podcast from Hamilton Lane that brings information and perspective from our greatest asset, our people. I'm your host, Katie Moore. Before we dive into today's topic, I have a very exciting announcement. I hope my colleagues at Hamilton Lane and loyal listeners to the show will be excited to learn that we are expanding our podcast team. Given that we have a deep and knowledgeable bench of talent here at the firm, we thought it made sense to increase our global coverage to bring you even more great topics and conversations. And with that, I'd like to introduce my new co-host, who will be leading some of our future episodes, Fabio Montaigne. Fabio, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Katie. I'm glad to be here. Fabio is a senior member of our direct credit team based in our London office. And I thought it would be great to start with sort of your background and your role at the firm. Uh, yeah, sure thing. So I joined Hamilton Lane uh, quite recently in January of 2023 to help lead the credit sourcing and execution efforts in the UK and Europe. Prior to Hamilton Lane, I spent a decade in banking, most of which was in leveraged finance, where I prim- primarily supported financing needs of private equity-backed companies, both in the mid-cap space and across broadly syndicated markets. Very exciting. We had Emily and Nayef on our last episode um, and was curious, you know, where in the credit space you're spending more of your time these days in terms of deal opportunities. I'd say it's a really mixed bag, um, both in terms of size of companies and types of instruments we're looking at. A lot of the opportunities we see traditionally uh, fall in sort of the mid-market space. And I've definitely been seeing a fair share of that, both Europe and the U.S., However, given the dislocations in the broadly syndicated space last year, which has continued into 2023, uh, also seeing an increasing amount of opportunities in the large cap space as well. Um, and in terms of in terms of types of instrument, we're really seeing deals across the entire cap stack. Uh, so everything from senior secured first lien credit all the way through to structured pref equity and everything in between. That's great. And you were saying earlier that you guys have never been busier, which is really exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely uh, definitely ramping up. Great. Maybe a last question. What sparked your interest in podcast hosting and, and what are you excited to be taking on with this new role? So I started listening to podcasts probably several years ago. I mean, pretty much when, when the art form, if you'd like to call it that, was invented. Uh, and I think it's fair to say I'm pretty hooked. I'm, I'm a daily listener. There are a number of podcasts that I listen to every day and you know I'm very, very um, interested in. I think they've become, it's become my method of choice to consume information. There's just something about the format which captures my attention like nothing else, better than books, better than you know articles, better than TV, film, documentaries, et cetera. So uh, just very, very um, uh, keen on it. Um, and when I saw the opportunity um, for a co-host within Hamilton Lane, I thought it could be a great opportunity to take my love for podcasts to the next level, whilst also expanding my knowledge and network across the world of private markets. That's great. It's definitely a a storytelling art form. So I am excited to be able to share the responsibility with you. So again, thank you, Fabio. We're really excited to have you join the show and look forward to your first hosting job here with our team on areas of opportunity in Asia. Thank you, Katie. Today, we are speaking to my colleague, Colwyn Tan. Colwyn is a managing director and co-head of Asia Investments at Hamilton Lane, based in our Hong Kong office. Colin has been with Hamilton Lane since 2011 and has been an instrumental part of our growth journey in Asia over the past decade or so. Colin, welcome and thanks for joining. No, thank you, Fabio. Uh, It is truly a pleasure to be here. 
uh, especially uh, to talk about Asia at the time of global uncertainty, uh, which inevitably it's you know really casting a large shadow of doubt. Uh, before we get into the whole Asia perspective, um, I just want to say that, you know, doubt is a, is a good thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, doubt is our best friend uh, in the field of investments. Uh, it keeps us up at night, keeps me up at night for sure, other than my 10-month-old baby. Uh, <laughs> but it also drives us to make kind of the, the best decisions, right? Uh, and more importantly, uh, I think it forces us to seek advice uh, in a forum like this, um, sharing different perspectives. Um, so it is truly an honor to be part of this. No, it's, it's, it's definitely sounds exciting. Um, maybe to kick it off, it'd be, it'd be great if you could maybe give some background on your history with the firm um, and a snapshot of our presence in Asia and how this has developed since since you joined Hamilton Name. Sure. You know, I've been with the firm uh, pretty, pretty much fresh out of business school, uh, as you said, in 2011. Uh, being with Hamilton Lane for 12 years, starting in this very office in Hong Kong. Uh, to now we have 40 professionals uh, across six offices uh, covering Greater China, Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia out of Singapore, and it's a stepping stone to India, and also Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so it is a very big map and region, to say the least. And more importantly, it's very heterogeneous, you know, with each country having its own nuances uh, and macro characteristic. Um, 2022, for examples, has been dramatically different uh, from country to country. Uh, but overall, the region is still experiencing tremendous growth. Uh, and we are growing with the region. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we just opened our sixth office in Shanghai uh, this March. So, you know, great things ahead. Obviously, the, the world is a pretty big and complex place. And Asia, just given its size, population, it's a universe in and of itself. Um, it would be helpful if you could maybe break down the continent in terms of key countries, regions, and how does sort of the economic development vary across each of these? Yeah, sure. I think I think uh, breakdown is probably a good way to start because it is a big map uh, and things are very, very different. Uh, so let's start with kind of the, uh, I would say the mature OECD countries. Uh, and that's mainly kind of North Asia and Australia, right? Japan, Korea, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, which are really more of the mature country with an OECD status. Um, all of these countries are facing lower growth uh, as opposed to kind of like the, the you know, very strong growth uh, in other parts of Asia. Um, although uh, you can find sectors uh, with outsized growth, such as healthcare and anything with elderly care in the aging population of Japan and Korea uh, and consumer uh, by and large. Outside of Chinese, Chinese yuan, uh, RMB and Singapore dollars, uh, all major currency has depreciated uh, just as overall to the strength of the dollar. Uh, the Korean won is actually normalized quite a bit. Uh, just given the lockstep monetary policy nature with the U.S., which in stark contrast uh, to the Japan's interest rate environment, which continue to hover just above the 0%. I mean, we're still seeing leverage buyout with a dip package priced at 2.5%, right? Which is just a dynamic like you don't see elsewhere. Uh, so in those markets, the more mature OECD countries uh, is really more about just buyout, buyout, buyout. So I think the rest of Asia, which is developing Asia, like China, India, South Asia, is, 
uh, it really presents a great opportunity as a hedge to stagflations, where these are the markets where growth continue to outpace inflation, right? So 2022 has not been kind to China, to say the least. Um, COVID containment all of last year has been more disruptive to businesses and life, as we've witnessed uh, with our colleagues in Shanghai. Uh, the new leadership uh, and the 20th Congress very quickly abandoned that approach in the beginning of 2023, uh, you know, truly signaling a self-correction, um, especially when it comes to the next five years policy. And that is very heavily focused on advanced manufacturing, food security, uh, and green energy, renewables, uh, to be more precise. Uh, outside of the obvious GP, GDP rebounds and from reopening, uh, we're also seeing some positive signs on export data in the first half out of China. Uh, and that's probably from a low base um, of 2022, right? Southeast Asia is one of the fastest growing region uh, with a growing um, and equally important young populations. There are 300 million people under the age of 30, which are all digital native. Uh, and that's really driving many opportunities uh, in e-commerce, digitalizations, related themes of investments uh, as private capital find its way in supplementing public infrastructure really to unlock kind of the emerging middle-class uh, consumption potentials. Uh, the bulk of the Southeast Asian currency have also been relatively resilient on the back of the very harsh lesson learned from the Asia financial crisis in 1997. Uh, so many of these um, sovereign wealth funds uh, and banks uh, are have ample of reserve um, and also a lot of exports. Uh, which is also providing uh, a pretty good cushions in this currency movement. India, similarly, a lot of emerging middle-class consumption stories, uh, most recently with a newly implemented digital infra infrastructure uh, that's really spurring a lot of innovations. Uh, interest rates are relatively expensive. Uh, so we actually do see some uh, private credit activities uh, in our markets. So you see a huge gamut of difference from advanced OECD country, where it's all about buyouts and you can still get leverage buyout loans at 2.5% in Japan, all the way to environments where in India, interest rates are still quite expensive uh, and private credit continue to be very prevalent. That's very interesting. And it sounds like you've got you know quite a, a bifurcated uh, market in that sense between the de developed Asia and, and developing Asia. Um, overall, obviously growth rates look attractive compared to the West. Uh, and inflation rates are certainly lower, and and you know seemingly the 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 hikes um, in in terms of uh, interest rates by you know made by by governments isn't as aggressive as what we're seeing in the West. So overall, you know it certainly looks like there's a bit more macro optimism uh, in Asia than 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 in Europe and North America. But it's not all you know rosy. Uh, the region does have its own challenges. Maybe zooming in on on China uh, for a minute, which is obviously attracting a lot of attention and, and headlines these days. Um, on the one hand, you've had the end of its zero COVID policy earlier this year, which has undoubtedly sparked some optimism for a rebound in mm -hmm. economic activity. But on yeah. the other hand, you've got a housing slowdown and and growing geopolitical tensions 
um, namely with the US, which are keeping some investors a bit more cautious. Could you perhaps touch on some of the those challenges we're seeing in China at the moment and, and how we should think of that longer term? Yeah, definitely. It's actually one of the questions we've been thinking uh, very hard and introspectively uh, because last year has definitely been a very challenging year uh, for many per- market participants, uh, particularly the China-focused GP. Uh, they probably have the roughest year uh, on record, uh, whether it comes to public performances or just the disruptions in the portfolio company, uh, given the zero COVID policies. Uh, I would just maybe point out uh, two observations. Um, let's just take a step back and have a more of a 30,000 feet views. Um, we have seen down cycles and volatility in China before. Uh, actually, as a matter of fact, the narrative in China is ever evolving and changing. In 2009, on the back of the great financial crisis, uh, or more precisely, but China is really more of a demand side softness in US and Europe, uh, and also the RMB inflation, which resulted in you know, a lot of monetary policy tightening uh, that lasted for quite a period of time. And all the way to 2016, when China is pivoting from an export and manufacturing oriented economy to a consumption driven economy, there was a lot of teething pain. And China soft landing, quote unquote, was all that we could talk about uh, for 2016, right? Uh, and last year, um, given the zero COVID policies uh, during the super return in Singapore, which hosted a bunch of events out of our office as well, uh, China was almost like a, a dirty word, right? <laughs> uh, so, you know, to now, you know, all of this seemingly every cycle in six years, uh, we are seeing some positive signs and also another change in narrative. Um, so I would just say, given where our focus are in the private markets, we really like to focus on the fundamentals, uh, which are you know market performances and macro indicators. In terms of macro, I touched on that briefly a while ago when I talked about broader Asia. Um, China remains to be one of the largest economy uh, and still is the largest trading partners to over 225 countries around the world, including the US. Uh, the second observations um, that we have witnessed, and this is probably the first time in my investment tenure, is that we are actually witnessing a divergence between China and the West, uh, particularly in the public markets. Uh, so let's take um, the China X index um, and also the, the CSI 300 index, for example, which are mainly unsure, so largely, largely uncorrelated to its US peer, the Chinese ADRs. Uh, the drop onshore started on the back on a series of regular crackdowns, uh, whereas the drop in the U.S. started earlier in the year, you know, by the concern of interest rate, inflation, and Ukraine. Uh, and in macroeconomics, uh, we are also seeing a sharp contrast uh, with China inflation closer to like kind of the zero to two percent, and we are seeing interest rate cuts to stimulate the economy, seemingly going to more of a accommodative easing policy as opposed to tightening. Um, typically, you know, we don't want to spend too much time on the public markets, right? Just, you know, we tend to believe that the value creations 
in private market is very, very different than that in the public markets. Uh, so the world couldn't be further apart. Uh, and I think the one thing that we have in our minds is that, is that a, a good thing or a bad thing that the world's top two economies uh, are seemingly lagging in 180 degree cycles uh, on economic uh, progressions? Um, the, I don't have an answer right now, but a safe answer is probably more similar to what Ray Dalio has been preaching, right? It's just the ability to maintain flexibility and optionality uh, and having exposure um, to both market is probably the more prudent way to go about this. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. And, you know, obviously China, you know, you're reading the headlines these days, you know, they're even talking about potential um, you know, deflation, uh, which is a complete stark contrast to the rest of the world. And um, with that in mind, what are your reviews on a recession occurring in China and maybe Asia more broadly? And how is China's reopening affecting the domestic economy as well as global growth more generally? So if not, in our market overview, uh, we uh, boldly predicted that uh, it's close to like 100 plus percent that there's going to be a recession in Europe Europe, and also the US. Uh, we think the chances of recession in China, it's it's very, very low. Uh, and the, the economy is still over, overall expanding in the band of like five to six percent. It's the lowest growth rate it has been, uh, but nevertheless, it's still expanding. Um, I think we think of it as most countries that we have witnessed in its economic progressions, uh, a pivot from you know, uh, qualitative growth, sorry, quantitative growth to more qualitative growth, right? So we think the opening of China, uh, you will have a few phases of effect. The first phases is really more domestically and which we are seeing it as it plays out uh, in the first half of this year. Uh, the Chinese New Year essentially came across the February timing was really kind of the first window where China has abandoned the whole zero COVID policies. And we saw mobility and travel picked up uh, pretty much to the pre-COVID level uh, where people are going back to home and seeing families again, giving the free mobilities. Uh, and then now we're also seeing, uh, and that's true for our portfolio company as well. Uh, we have a businesses that essentially the car rental business. We also have some QSR, uh, which are the offline centric businesses uh, in China. And we're seeing some very, very strong data in terms of Q1 and Q2 performances on the law of 2022, no less, but it's also getting very, very close to the 2019 level. So pretty much going back to the pre-COVID uh, activities, which is kind of funny to say because it's been a while and we feel that the V-shared recovery has occurred in most markets around the world, but delay uh, in China. Uh, so that's one part of the uh, domestic cycle. Uh, and I think overall, uh, we are also seeing uh, more multinationals uh, are finding real differentiated angles in terms of how they should address the China markets. Uh, and many of our Chinese sponsors are picking up that cue to, to be that conduit. And we are also seeing how Chinese businesses are trying to grow outside of China uh, as businesses outgrown itself in the domestic markets or as a simply matter of de-risk in terms of these concentrations of uh, manufacturing facility or customers. 
the games are changing uh, as we see, uh, just given the dramatic kind of about phase of what happened in terms of policy in the last 12 months. So we do think that the recipe for success in the, in the last vintage will be quite different um, from this point on going forward. Thanks for that. I, it's it's hard to ignore, you know, d- despite, I guess, all the, the headline press in China, it, it is hard to ignore the, the growth rate um, that it's historically uh, managed to, to maintain and, and, and expected in, in the future as well. Maybe turning our attention now to, to private markets, private markets in Asia. C- could you give us a quick snapshot of what the landscape looks like? Um, and also, you know, particularly on, on the GP side and, and how this has evolved over the years? Sure. Uh, I will stick with your kind of the, the macro questions um, by dividing this to kind of the developed Asia and developing Asia. Uh, for North Asia, specifically OECD countries, uh, it is really all about buyouts. It's buyout, buyout, buyouts. Uh, particularly in founder successions, where entrepreneur has reached age of like tender age of 60 and 70s, uh, many of their kids are educated abroad or don't really want anything to do with the business. Uh, there's, there's also a very punitive estate taxes regime uh, in North Asia, where if you pass the business down, it's 50% tax, as opposed to if you were to, you know, cash out the business uh, to private equity or to strategics and then being charged at a more amicably uh, lower capital gain tax. So we do see a lot of founder successions uh, and common conglomerate uh, simply just as a function of the maturity of the market and the OECD status. Um, so in our minds, for private markets, um, the manager are really differentiated by their access and network. You know, so the GP needs to be very plugged in uh, in this local market, uh, particularly if you want to capture the outside growth vertical, such as healthcare host buys some specific consumer sectors. Uh, and, the GP, and the GPs are also developing a much deeper playbooks uh, in operating a, a first-time institutionally-owned asset, essentially. So that's kind of on the North Asia, the more mature OECD countries. Uh, in, in China, uh, outside of the macroeconomic uh, prog- progress uh, and updates that I have shared, uh, overseas listing uh, continue to be very challenging you know, and, and risky. While domestic or what we call Asia markets are really picking up the steams. Uh, the Shanghai and the Shenzhen Stock Exchange uh, are essentially sucking up the law and the inactivities on NASDAQ and Hong Kong listing. Uh, it's actually one of the most, one of the record years in terms of IPO activities on the onshore markets. Um, but with that said, we will likely see more control opportunities uh, and exits. Uh, so very similar to the you know, market mature, m- like maturity throughout the OECD countries where IPO markets, trade sales, secondaries are all on the table in terms of the providing liquidity. Uh, we were definitely, uh, we are in, I think we are entering the phase where all three of these uh, exit outlooks uh, are becoming more prevalent in China as well. It's no longer just an IPO stories. Uh, 
uh, or growth or growth equity thesis. So we need to be more flexible, right? So you, you need to find a way potentially take advantage of the onshore listing or finding GPs where you can partner with in terms of control situations uh, when founders and businesses are covering up business specifically for China. Um, as I mentioned to you a while ago, when it comes to like China, you know, we really like to focus on the fundamentals. Uh, and at the same time, um, the beta of the observed P return, it's about 0.4, right? Which means that, you know, the P returns goes down less when there's a sell-off in the public markets, which certainly has occurred in China, uh, more specifically Chinese ADR, um, and they don't rebound as quick uh, if and when there's a recovery. Um, but more importantly, the relative outperformance of private market increases in, in the periods where you know, the public market struggle. So the 2009, the 2016 cycles in China that I mentioned um, were followed by some of the strongest performing vintages, right? So that's China in terms of private markets. Uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Philippines, uh, which have GDP per capita hovering just about the four to $5,000 per capita, are, are really at the inflection points of growth. Uh, as a result, uh, it is mostly uh, a venture and, and growth equity markets. Uh, although exit in the domestic markets are, are hit or miss, uh, simply just given uh, the depth of the capital markets uh, in, those, in those countries. Uh, India, there's a lot of similarity in terms of you know, macro undertones and the secular tailwinds. Um, but otherwise, it's also uh, mostly venture uh, and growth equity markets. Uh, although in the case of India, uh, capital market has outperformed uh, and we have seen more successes exits uh, in its own domestic markets. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. I, I, I remember reading a stat that Asia accounts for close to 50% of global GDP. And I think mm -hmm. they're still shy of sort of 10% of global private markets exposure. Right. Um, right. You know, and when you take that and you couple in the, the GDP growth rates, um, you know, you'd certainly expect this market to grow pretty uh, quickly over the coming years. Yeah, Fabio, it's a good thing you brought it up because it is actually one of the things that many of our existing investors in Asia and Prospect are quoting us, you know, because um, not only as an asset class, her market is relatively new, right? So compared to the yield endowments and the likes, uh, many of its peers, the equivalents uh, in Asia, are still trying to catch up to that part. But let's just take the most sophisticated LPs in the world. Uh, I dare to say, uh, Asia as a contribution to the overall private market exposure uh, is nowhere close to the GDP numbers that, you know, contribution that you, you, you just quoted me, right? So we actually seen a lot of inbound interest uh, from Asia investor or non-Asia investor uh, essentially, you know, quote unquote, trying to time the markets, although we always advise our clients, investor, not to do that. Um, it's really more of a, you know, a longer term journey as opposed to, you know, uh, opportunistic ones. Um, but nevertheless, I think there's a lot of kind of attention that's been drawn in this region. Uh, and that's really centered around the story of growth. 
uh, and just demographic trends, where many of our investors and prospects uh, are also seeing themselves uh, as being, you know, has a, has a, has a chance to tap into these markets, but it's extremely complex and diverse. So how do they best address this like volatile times? Uh, and we certainly would love to be of a helping hands uh, to navigate that whole journey as we've been here for like, you know, 15 plus years. Maybe moving over to deal making and, and also fundraising. So, you know, deal making environment globally, it showed signs of improvements when we emerged from the pandemic. You know, it was very, very active market. Fundraising has proven to be a little bit more challenging, particularly, you know, in 2022, um, with, with, with all the challenges we had there. Is it any different in Asia? And, and, I, and I guess, what's sort of the implications here for, for GPs? You, you, uh, you nail it in the head, Fabio. So I think fundraising remains challenging in general. Uh, that's for sure. Um, I, would, I, I would attempt to answer your questions on, in terms of the, the implications for the GPs uh, in, in, in two ways. Um, the first one being, I think, in strategy. Uh, for venture and growth, uh, it's all about vintages. You know, especially the more recent vintages um, experience a more meaningful drop in terms of performance, just given a large exposure um, of the deployments where the peak of the markets and the subsequent corrections, uh, the, the performance of our more mature growth funds, however, uh, are generally still tracking close or above the 20% LR. Uh, for buyout, it's, it's, it is all about contribution pacing uh, and how much dry powder is left uh, to take advantage of the current prices. There will be a fight to familiarity. Uh, so it is very difficult to be a first-time fund or pivot to a new strategy. Uh, that's one observation that we have seen. In terms of deal-making, uh, the GPR exercising cautions. Uh, and we should enjoy an uptick when it comes to interactions. Uh, maybe discussions in continuation vehicles, co-investments. Uh, similarly, as you know, GPR proactively and also eagerly managing distribution and exposure uh, and possibly just stay out of the markets for a, a little bit longer. Interesting. And, and um, you, know, you, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned our Hamilton Lane market overview. Uh, early in the discussion, you know, that overview, and, and I think we, we share this firm wide, you know, we certainly believe that the current market environment um, does pre present some pretty attractive um, opportunities and risk adjusted returns in private equity secondaries, uh, private credit and infrastructure. Curious to know whether you see the same thing playing out in Asia and maybe just more generally, you know, what are kind of the risk-adjusted returns and uh, and sort of deals that we see out there um, re really look like? That's a great question, Fabio. Uh, where, shall, where shall I start? <laughs> Let's start with, um, uh, let me start with the kind of the similarity ones. Uh, I think on secondary, many of the macro trends that is playing out globally, um, such as the denominator effects, uh, the overabundance of deal flow, either GP-led or LP-led versus the more limited bio-universe, et cetera. Uh, all of that is playing out in Asia, perhaps um, even more amplified to a certain extent. Uh, and that's really 
just a function of the nascent nature of secondary in Asia specifically. Um, and with only a handful of secondary players, ourselves included, um, that are, you know, have spent enough time to be familiar with the GPs and more importantly, uh, have been tracking assets in the regions. Uh, so let's take China, for example. Today, the whole China secondary market is only one seventh of the world. Uh, we certainly expect that figure to pick up. Therefore, we have a China presence in our Shanghai office opening in March uh, with a license uh, to try to capture the current buyer's markets. So that's one thing that we continue to feel very bullish about, very, very similarly to that in our global view uh, of market overview. Uh, on credits, although and I think China represents a third of the world GDP, 50, 60% of the total growth, uh, today, the private market in Asia only accounts for 7% of global private market, private credit universe. Uh, some of the, I think, impediments to growth uh, has historically been the risk-adjusted returns uh, with investor perceiving a much higher level of risk in Asian markets, uh, and the performance has been mixed. Uh, however, markets such as Australia, Singapore, Korea, that are more creditor friendly, we are certainly seeing better deals um, and also more friendly terms coming to the markets, particularly in our pipelines. Uh, while historically, uh, those have been more bank intermediated. So as a result, uh, we are seeing a handful of equity GP um, building out their credit solutions uh, to allow for more flexible deployments of capital across the capital structures, uh, ranging from senior secure uh, to venture credits. Uh, we are also seeing global credit manager setting up Asia offices in the last 12 months, which further expand the opportunity sets. Uh, the one thing that's a bit, a bit different than our global market review is on buyouts. Um, we have always believed that buyout is an all-weather strategy. Uh, because of control and the optionality around exits, uh, many levers for value creation, either consolidations, cost takeouts, they simply do not depend on market conditions. As such, uh, it really provides a more favorable conditions for buyouts with valuation coming down, more sellers willing to sell control, the shift of economy from high growth to quality growth. Uh, and this we are seeing uh, firsthand in China, Japan, and Korea. It sounds super exciting. And, you know, you, you, really, you really sort of buy into the, into the growth journey there. Maybe just a final question on, on performance. Um, sure. how, how should investors really think about performance of private markets in Asia relative to their Western counterparts and also to maybe, maybe Asian public markets? I love the fact that you brought up private markets because that's precisely how many of our investors and prospects are thinking about it. Just given the size of the economic block, Asia cannot be ignored. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, either it comes to portfolio management or when it comes to asset allocations. And if you look at all the historical data or the private equity observable matrix, 
um, that we've been tracking in the last 10 to 15 years or so. Um, across all vintages, private market continue to, uh, private equity, private market in Asia specifically, continue to perform that of public markets. So it is still the best alternative when it comes to accessing economic growth and also demographic trends, particularly when it comes to lifestyle upgrades, consumption upgrades, or even business outsourcing trends in Asia. So we like that in terms of the strategy within Asia, public versus private. There's certainly data to support how private is outperforming. So that's point number one. Uh, and point number two is the players and the thesis and also the vintages, even geography and also sector. So five different selection criteria are ever changing and they are changing and evolving as we speak, right? So an active portfolio management is paramount. Your ability to look up and observe the dynamic when it comes to macro indications, fundamental growth when it comes to demographic trends, and also the ability to tap into this very robustly growing markets uh, is essentially the premium that you have to pay to get into this you know, vibrant regions of the world that's very heavily growth centric. So we like that. We like the fact that it is very diverse, very heterogeneous, uh, and also the fact that it's very complex, even for a uh, winning formula in Malaysia may not necessarily transfer to its neighboring state of Singapore, right? So all of that complexity means that access is paramount. And we have been painstakingly building up our presence from Hong Kong to the ground up to now six offices, 40 different professionals uh, with local, you know, local passwords, local knowledge, uh, local networks. Uh, that is something that we feel, you know, very excited to get out of beds and try to access all of those options because selectivities, it's paramount, as I say, but selectivity is also kind of a mood exercise when you don't have the deal flow and options to choose from. Uh, and our deal flows has been, you know, another record levels, another banner years in terms of like, you know, secondary direct. Uh, and we are also seeing uh, plenty of general partners that are, you know, revolutionizing themselves, reinventing themselves when it comes to operational knowledge, when it comes to access to the local markets, uh, that's coming back to the market with, you know, reasonably success, right? Uh, we, are, we are still seeing one and done fundraising in Asia. I know those, I know those are rare in general, uh, certainly in the US, uh, but we are seeing them, right? Uh, and that is, you know, a pretty positive sign overall. Thank you, Colin. That was uh, super informative for myself and I'm, I'm sure for the listeners too. Um, I, I would like to thank everyone for listening. Uh, please look out for the next episode. Um, and until next time, I'm Fabio Montaigne and this is Private Markets Made Human. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Fabio. It was a pleasure to be here.